Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, uh, in the church Bibles, that's page 985, and in the large print Bibles, that's page 1530. Matthew 18, and this evening we're going to look at verses 1 to 14. Uh, I've said before that Matthew's Gospels uh, split into five uh, sections where there's five big uh, blocks of Jesus' teaching. Uh, And the last time we had a big block of teaching was in chapter 13 with all of those parables. And since that time, uh, really, Matthew's been talking to us about the identity of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. So who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus as our King. And as we come to this next block of teaching in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus really talks about discipleship, what it means to follow him, but as he talks about discipleship, he's really talking also about how we follow him together as disciples. How do we live together as people who follow Jesus? As we come to chapter 18, this is the fourth of those five uh, big sections of teaching. And this chapter could be uh, summarized uh, by the topic of the childlikeness of the believer. The childlikeness of the believer. Throughout this, uh, this section, especially in the verses tonight, uh, we're going to see how Jesus' uh, people are described as children Or uh, another way that he describes them is the title for this particular section, God's Little Ones. And children is a very common way of describing Christians in the New Testament. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 17, uh, Jesus referred to to, to the children being exempt from the temple tax. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the peacemakers are called children of God. And it's a common theme through pretty much all of the New Testament writers. So Paul the Apostle uh, in Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Uh, The writer to Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 7, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. But some other New Testament writers, Peter, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And the Apostle John, he writes, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. So almost all of the New Testament writers refer to God's people as children. That is what we are, children of God. Now to us, that may seem a very nice thing. But to the disciples in Matthew chapter 18, we see that they did not always think in this way. They did not always appreciate being referred to as children. And we see that as we come to Matthew chapter 18 with their question 
in verse 1. So let's uh, begin uh, reading Matthew chapter 18. Uh, We'll read verses 1 to 14. But notice how different their question is in verse 1 to what being a child really is. So verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See, to, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that is wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is God's word. Did you notice the attitude of the disciples in verse 1? Now in other Gospels, we see them arguing over who is the greatest. Here the question isn't asked with a reference to an argument, but there is no doubt that this is not just some general interest that they have. Oh Jesus, we're just wondering which one of us is the greatest. It would be helpful for us to know. No, this question is full of pride, self-seeking glory, and a desire for prestige. Perhaps it is linked to the fact that in the previous chapter, just some of the disciples went up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Or perhaps it's linked to the fact that some of the disciples had failed in the healing of the demon-possessed person earlier on. But whatever the reason behind the question, there is no good reason to ask. I mean, if you have children, there's never a good uh, time when a child can ask, well, which one of us is your favorite? Now, we get asked that question, perhaps, but we don't answer it because, of course, we don't have or shouldn't have favorites. 
But Jesus answers their question by turning their worldview upside down of what greatness really is. He teaches them how we enter the kingdom by becoming like children. In verse 2, Jesus takes a little child and he places it among them. And really this child is an object lesson in what greatness really is. He uses the child as a picture. Now to understand the radical nature of what Jesus is saying, it is helpful to understand what the social status of children were in the Roman world where these events were taking place. I'm going to quote uh, on the screen from one historian who describes what the, what the Roman idea of greatness is. Hardness was a Roman ideal. The skill required to hunt out glory or endure disaster was the defining mark of a citizen. It was instilled in him from the moment of his birth. The primary response of, a, of Roman parents to their babies appears to have been less tenderness than shock that anything could be quite so soft and helpless. To the Romans, such a condition verged on the scandalous. Children were certainly too weak to be idealized, and the highest praise a child could be given was to be compared to an adult. A Roman did not become a citizen by right of birth. It was within the power of every father to reject a newborn child, to order, order unwanted sons and especially daughters to be exposed. And when it says to be exposed, what that means is literally thrown on the rubbish heap and left to die. And this happened uh, often uh, to children, especially to girls, because they couldn't have this Roman strength in the same way that the men had. And literally a father had the right to decide which of his children lived and which of his children died. The baby was lifted up and the father would make a decision, yes or no. So when in verse 4, Jesus says that the disciples must take the lowly position of this child to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you can see how radical this really was. It was totally countercultural. Now, in our culture, most of us love babies, and that's a good thing. But in this culture, they were despised. And notice in verse 3 how Jesus said that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, they need to change, which means they need to have a turnaround from the mindset of who is the greatest to taking the lowest position. Or in other words, they need to change from thinking of being the greatest to adopting the status of a little child. Now naturally, we don't want to do this. Even people with low self-esteem wish they didn't have it, right? Most of us have inflated egos. And it's not an easy thing to willingly lower ourselves to purposely humble ourselves. But the door to God's kingdom is very low and very narrow. Inflated egos just won't fit through. So how do we adopt the position of a child? We need a spirit-induced change of mindset. 
First of all, we need to recognize that under God, we are sinners who deserve hell. That brings us down a bit, doesn't it? To realize that I don't deserve to be in God's kingdom. Anyone with an inflated view view of themselves does not think that they're a bad person. God disagrees. We humbly bow before God and we depend on him for mercy and forgiveness. We are to recognize that we can only be saved from hell by his amazing grace that has been shown to us in sending Jesus to die in our place. As Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the position we, we, we put ourselves in before God. I am not worthy to be in your kingdom because I am a sinner. I am there only by grace. But we also adopt the position of a child with one another by putting others before ourselves. We don't seek to want to be the best all the time, but we want to seek to promote and to bless other people. We humble ourselves and put ourselves in the position of a child when we don't judge others by thinking that we are better than they are and treating them as such. A child in the Roman world had no choice but to recognize their status. They had no choice but to depend upon others for help and to submit to them. And Jesus says to be in the kingdom of God, you are to to recognize your status as little children. The lesson here is, as Jesus said in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same, same idea, poverty of spirit. Children in Roman times uh, were often rejected. We've seen that. In fact, we have a phrase, uh, don't we? Uh, children should be seen and not heard. And we might not think that phrase is very nice, but that was even too kind for children in the Roman times. People didn't want to see them either. But notice in verse 5 how Jesus says that welcoming God's children is welcoming Jesus himself. To, to welcome means to receive with gladness. You know if you're welcome in someone's house, don't you? Or you, you can know when you're not welcome. But Jesus is saying that we're to be welcoming to God's children, to, to receive them into not just our homes, but into our lives gladly. Jesus is saying that rather than arguing over who is the greatest, we're to be welcoming each other, preferring each other, accepting each other. And in doing so, we're accepting Jesus himself. So we are God's children and we need to see ourselves as such through humility. But being God's child, although in the Roman times it was a scandalous thing to say, it is also a wonderful position to be in. Because it means we have God as our father. In the Roman world, being a child was tough and being looked down on. But in God's kingdom, the childlike are the greatest. But also, as well as being the greatest in the kingdom... We have a father who is greatly concerned for his children. Or as Jesus describes them, 
his little ones. Notice that there's a deliberate tenderness to that phrase, isn't there? His little ones. That's how God looks upon us. We're his little ones, his very own. And like any good parent, he doesn't want his children to be led astray. In fact, for those who do that to God's children, disaster awaits. That's what we see in verses 5 to 9. Causing God's children to stumble is disastrous. Uh, Verse 6, actually, uh, in the NIV, the word but is missing. But at the beginning of verse 6, you could say, but if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble. So it's a contrast to the welcome of verse 5. In verse 5, it's you need to welcome God's children. But on the other hand, if you cause them to stumble, well, this is a disaster for you. Little ones are defined as those who believe in me, so this is Christians, God's children, and God is concerned that they are not caused to stumble. Now last week we looked at actually in in Romans chapter 14 and 15 what that word stumble or offense means, and it refers to blocking the way to Jesus, blocking the view of him, causing people to fall down so that they don't see him. Or if you think of it in terms of children, Things that stop God's children from growing in maturity. Stop them from growing up. This is not causing people to walk away from Christ. Those that deny the faith are not his children in the end. But rather, these are the ones who are his little ones who are being distracted from Jesus by people leading them into sin or into harm. And look at at the end of verse 6, how seriously God takes this. He says it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So in other words, a painful death by drowning is preferable to causing one of God's children to stumble. Because the judgment of God on those who do so is far worse than drowning. Or in other words, for us... It is better that we die than we lead one of God's children astray. And that's a serious thing to consider, isn't it? I've I've prayed about this myself because here, here, here we are teaching God's word. It would be better that I have a millstone and I go get thrown in the canal than it would be for me to preach from this pulpit in such a way that would cause the little ones of God to be, to be led astray, led away from Jesus. Now this isn't talking about uh, uh, we've said something wrong that we can correct. Now this is rather an attitude, a deliberate attitude and decision of wanting to cause God's children to stumble. Now there's times when I say things that are, are not right from time to time. Uh, we make mistakes, we, we're human. That's not what Jesus is talking of here. This is a deliberate decision that is made to want to lead his children astray and it's so serious that if that's the position you want to take it is better for you to die than to do that so in verse 6 Jesus talks about the seriousness of this and in verses 7 to 9 Jesus talks of where the sources of stumbling come from and the first place in verse 7 is that stumbling is caused from the world Notice that. First of all, he says, woe. Now, when Jesus says, woe, 
it is a judgment being pronounced. In other words, woe means this is seriously not going to be good for you. So he says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Woe to the world. What what does the world mean? The world are unbelievers generally. Well, what, what causes of stumbling come from the world? Well, there's There is persecution that comes from the world, doesn't it? Where governments and individuals try through physically attacking people or otherwise to turn them away from following Jesus. They want the disciples, the little ones of God, to to, to stop believing. And so they try to, to make them stumble through persecution. But there is also evil influence in the world that attempts to undermine the truth of God's word and make God's children doubt his goodness, his existence, and so on. So think at the moment, for example, of how Christians are perceived in the media. Or when Christians come on the radio to argue a point, so often they are looked at as complete wallies, aren't they? That's what the world wants us to think. It causes God's people to stumble because Christians might look at that and think, well, is that really, are we really being that silly, you see? Think of how God's word is being undermined. Uh, When we go to um, uh, Contagious and we speak to the young people there, always there's questions about marriage, about gender and so on. And these things by the world are always presented as, as just so lovely and it's all so good. It causes God's children to stumble. Think of how some RE teaching in school teaches children about Christianity in such a way that's just not true. Now Jesus says here, notice, such things must come. That that is, it's inevitable that the world is going to try and cause God's children to stumble. This is always going to be the way. But this, this is the kicker here. But woe to the person through whom they come. Yes, Jesus says that the world is going to exert its evil influence and it's going to persecute. Don't be surprised at that, but don't you dare be involved. That's what he's saying. Don't be surprised, but don't you dare be involved. Woe to them who are, he says. The people of our day who are damaging children through promoting gender reassignment and the like, and telling God's children that we're stupid and wrong for standing against such things, Jesus says, woe to them. I think of of church leaders who are called to lead God's children and are denying the word of God. Jesus says here, woe to them. It's a frightening thing to consider that they've got to stand before this God who says, you dare not make my children stumble. We need to pray for those church leaders, don't we? Not judge them, pray for them, because they're in a very, very dangerous place. So this comes from the world, but in verses 8 and 9, Jesus outlines another place which is also very frightening. We see that stumbling can come from the disciples. You notice here a turn from the world to your hand or foot and your eye as being the cause of stumbling. 
Also, we see the damage being done to self. So if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble. So what we see here is people who are professing faith, but not doing what is needed to grow in holiness, not taking the danger of sin seriously. And this leaves them in danger of hell, not because they're not good enough, because none of us are good enough for heaven, but rather, as one writer helpfully says, failure to deal radically with sin in their own lives betrays their allegiance to the world and threatens them with the eternal fire of hell. If one is not fighting against sin, not being bothered about it, then you have to question their status as a child of God. Now this is not saying that we're not going to have ongoing battles for the rest of our lives. We will, we do. A Christian will always have fights with sin, but a Christian will always fight. And notice the radical nature here in the way Jesus speaks of dealing with sin. Cutting off limbs, plucking out eyes. Now he's not saying we should do these things, but he's saying that doing them to avoid hell would be worth doing. The thing is, to do them, we, we, we can't pluck our eye out in order to avoid hell. It's another work that isn't enough, and it doesn't deal with the heart. We can't avoid hell by self-mutilation, but if we're truly God's children, then our heart is going to be changed, and we're going to want to do what it takes to be holy. Although these verses speak of, of causing ourselves to stumble, the context of the passage is about the disciples talking about pride and wanting to be the greatest. So the context is about causing each other to stumble. Their arguing together about who is the greatest was causing them each to stumble. If I'm arguing with you about which one of us is the best Christian, it's not just me that I'm causing to stumble, but you as well. There is no sin, in fact, which only impacts ourselves. And if we don't deal with sin radically in our own lives, we are actually causing other little ones to stumble as well. That's the nature of being part of the body of Christ, isn't it? If we're a body, and part of it is infected, it affects all of the body, even if that infection is secret and hidden away. The disciples are told here to be as radical with their pride and with any other sin as they are to be with their lust in the same illustration Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. So how do we apply this? Well, we are never going to know all of our sin, and that, by the way, is amazing grace, because if God showed us everything that was wrong with us, we would not be able to take it. It would crush us, right? But over time, God reveals more and more so that we can fight with what's in front of us. But think about in your own life, what do you know is sin that is causing you, and according to this, it will therefore cause others to stumble to? What, what are those sins that you need to take steps to fight against. If you're unsure how to fight against it, then speak to another brother or sister who can help you and will be fighting sin in their own life as well. 
It is serious. But there's a reason why it's so serious. Causing God's children to stumble is disastrous because God cares for his children deeply. Jesus gives us the reason why this is such a serious thing in verses 10 to 14. In verse 10, he begins by summarizing what he's just said. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now to despise means to to look down on, to treat with contempt. In other words, don't treat God's children like the Romans treated all children. That's what he's saying. Don't think that it's okay to cause them to stumble. That your sin doesn't really matter. It does. Don't despise even one of these little ones. And then the second half of verse 10 gives the reason. He says, for, that is, this is the reason, I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. God's children are so important to God that they have angels who represent them before the face of the Father. Now, this does not mean that each of us has our own guardian angel. The reason I don't think it can mean that is because there is nowhere else in Scripture where you can build a case for every Christian having a guardian angel. Angels, though, are God's messengers or workers. And the point here is that they are working on behalf of his children. So when it says their angels, he's talking about uh, their as in the plural, as in all Christians' angels. In fact, it agrees with somewhere else in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So that means um, those inherit salvation are Christians. So the angels are God's ministering spirits, his workers, who serve those who are Christians. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So they are God's workers to serve his children. And I think what Jesus means here uh, can be helped by a a, a bit of an illustration. Depending on your status, which remember Jesus here is talking about the status of his people, uh, you will have a security detail. So I can walk around anywhere and nobody is watching out whether someone is going to try and kill me or not. I have no uh, security detail whatsoever. But if the Queen or if Donald Trump or someone like that was to come to Pelsall, you can bet they will have a whole load of security, people hidden in trees, people walking alongside them, all that kind of thing would be going on. Why? Because of the status of who they are. They have their own special security detail. Our preciousness to God's kingdom, our significance, our status is so great that God has given his elite protection squad of angels to protect his children. The fact that we have angels protecting us from God who stand before him on our behalf shows that we are significant, that we have a a status in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus means. Don't you dare cause one of my little ones to stumble because they're so important for me, my angels work for them on their behalf. You see? 
Or rather, the angels worked for God, but on behalf of his people. So he explains the reason why his children are so special. And then he illustrates it himself by showing the care he has for his children through this account of the wandering sheep. He says, what do you think? He says, in other words, I've told you about this, and I think about it for a minute. And then he gives this little short parable. Now, this is not the same parable as the lost sheep. The lost sheep speaks of God seeking and saving the lost, whereas here, the sheep isn't lost. He's wandered, well, he might be lost, but he's, kind of, he's wandered off. He's got, he's, he's, he was in the fold, and he's wandered away from the flock. Or in the language of earlier verses, this sheep has stumbled because of the world, because of sin in themselves, or because of sin in the disciples. And the shepherd has a hundred sheep, but one of them wanders off and he leaves the 99 in the, the pasture to go and find the one sheep that's wandered off. And when he finds that one sheep that's wandered off, he is so delighted that in verse 13 we read that he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Now, this is not saying that Jesus loves the one sheep at the expense of all the rest. But rather, what's going on here is that one sheep has gone missing. So there's 99 that's left. When the one comes back, he has his whole flock again. And so he's delighted, more happy that the flock is as a whole as it should be than he would be if he's only got the 99 left. You see? Someone's missing and that's so sad that he can't be, the shepherd can't be happy until he's got that other one back and the flock is made whole. And in verse 14, in the same way, just like that shepherd who goes after the wandering sheep, in the same way your, heaven, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Just like that shepherd goes after that wandering sheep because he cares for it so deeply. God loves his little ones so dearly, he doesn't allow them to wander off. He brings them back. Well, how does God do that? Well, that actually is the next point of, uh, the next part of Matthew chapter 18. Church discipline is God's way of bringing back the wandering sheep. But that is for next week. Before we get there, we need to remember from this part and this illustration that Jesus gives just how precious we are to God. Now, there is a place for what is known as worm theology. That is, I am just a worm. I, I'm so sinful. Um, I'm not worthy to be in God's kingdom. Yes, yes, yes. All those things are true. But we must balance it out with an understanding that you are incredibly precious to God. He has his angels serving you. He loves you so much that he comes and he finds you when you wander off. You are so precious to God that as his little ones, we are the greatest in his kingdom. We need to let that wonderful truth just sink in, don't we? That we are precious to our Father. But we also need to apply this in another way. By looking around at other believers and considering them in that way too. So each one of God's king, uh, God, the members of God's kingdom is so precious to God 
that we should treat them with the same kind of respect that we would give to royalty because that is what we are. We need to treat them with the same kind of love that our Heavenly Father has for us. And I think this is well illustrated in our membership commitments that we make as a church. Uh, We have these, these commitments that as members we commit to, and the commitment about our relationship to each other helpfully shows what Jesus wants us to live like from this passage. Uh, We believe this. This is what we have committed to. The spiritual and material welfare of all members is my concern, encouraging me to love and to pray for each member. This is further expressed in the faithful exercise of my God-given gifts within the corporate life of the church and by my willingness to submit to those in authority over me in the Lord. This is the commitment we make to one another. This is the commitment we make to care for God's precious little ones. So let's make sure that we're fulfilling this commitment that we've all made. Not doing so causes each other to stumble. And from this passage, we've read, we dare not be those people. The shepherd illustration shows how precious we are to God. But that love for his little ones was demonstrated most clearly, not in a parable, but in a historical reality. He's the shepherd who came and died on the cross for his sheep. So let us love those little ones whom God has loved so much by fighting sin in our own lives and humbling ourselves before God and one another as little children. Well, we're going to close with song uh, and respond by singing of Uh, how we are giving glory to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And in this song, uh, we uh, read about how Jesus is the shepherd of the weak and lost who who brings the wandering sheep back into the safety uh, of his flock. So let's stand as we sing and commit to giving glory to our God through our love for one another.